0: This morning, we're going to be looking at a, a time that was really the dawning of a new era. And you've seen times in your life where a new era was beginning and uh, the world was changing right in front of your eyes. And sometimes you've realized it when it was happening. Other times, maybe not. For instance, on September 11th, 2001, I think we all knew the world was changing right in front of our eyes. We knew what we were seeing would make a difference in the world for as long as we were still alive. But there's another date maybe you didn't realize at the time, and that date was January 9th, 2007. And that was the day that Steve Jobs got up on stage and announced the very first iPhone. And think about it. It might not have felt as momentous as other things, but think of your life pre-smartphone, and post-smartphone. And just even every single day, the ways that affects how you think, how you live. And for those of you that don't have a smartphone, God bless you. May your tribe increase. Uh, maybe we'll see people moving back that direction someday. But on that day, January 9th, 2007, Steve Jobs wowed the world with this new phone and all the things that it could do. And now so many people, they have that. That's a part of our everyday Lives and he showed all the features. You can make phone calls, you can use maps, you can do this, you can do that. And what would have been really nice is if somebody would have got up like after him and said, Okay, this is actually going to change your life more than you realize, and let's talk about it. Let's talk about these are going to be the good things that might be helpful, and then these are the things that are actually going to stink, and these are the things that you need to watch out for and make sure it doesn't destroy your life. Wouldn't that have been nice if that moment that was changing the world came with kind of, well, this is what you're supposed to do with it. Well, neither September 11th, 2001, or January 9th, 2007, even come close to making a difference in the world the way the first Easter Sunday did. The day that Jesus Christ rose from the dead, the world changed, and it has never been the same since. But the nice thing is, that night, he gave instruction to his disciples. This momentous event that had just happened, Jesus explains, hey, this is some of the significance. And this is what you need to take from this and go and do. And that's what we'll be looking at today as we go back to John chapter 20. So I invite you to take your Bibles, open up to John chapter 20, where we'll be looking at verses 19 through 29 today. And between These verses, we're going to see Jesus appearing to his disciples after his resurrection on two different Sundays, that first Easter Sunday and then a week later. And Jesus's words are going to make it clear, guys, a new era has begun. And he's going to give them instruction on how to live in that era. And that's important to us because guess what, guys? We're still living in that era. Uh, that era of post-resurrection and after the coming of the Spirit that he begins to talk about today, that is where we still all live. So it is so important that we hear these words that, that Jesus and how he's going to instruct his disciples here. Follow along as I read our passage this morning, John twenty nineteen through 29. On the evening of that first day, the first day of the week, the doors being locked where the disciples were for fear of the Jews, they are forgiven them. If you withhold forgiveness from any, it is withheld. Now, Thomas, one of the 12, called the twin, was not with them when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, we have seen the Lord. But he said to them, unless I see in his hands the mark of the nails and place my finger into the mark of the nails and place my hand into his side, I will never believe. Eight days later, when Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. So here, as we see these two different appearances, the first one appears on that evening of the very first Easter Resurrection Sunday. And it points out that the disciples are locked up. And clearly, there's been some reports already at this point that at least Jesus is not in the tomb or that Jesus has risen Again, but it says that they are still afraid of the Jews. And before you you know, start coming down on the disciples, how could they still be afraid if Jesus was alive? I mean, put yourself in their shoes. They had not seen him yet, so many of them are still wrestling uh, with that. And what had they just seen the Jews do to Jesus? They had just seen him arrested, brutally beaten, uh, going through some mockery of a trial, and then Crucified. And now that the Sabbath is over, I mean, many of them are probably thinking, we have to be next. That has to be the next order of business. All right, let's round up those troublemaking disciples. And so they are afraid, but Jesus comes and stands in their midst. Now, that's interesting. Both times Jesus appears in our passage today, it highlights that the doors were locked. So does that mean that Jesus, while in the tomb, you know, brushed up on his, you know, picking the lock skills? No, it seems that Jesus appears in these rooms, even though they're locked. Like last time we saw Jesus, the grave clothes were still there. Somehow his body passed through uh, the grave clothes. And so while he still bears the marks in his hands and his side, right? He's still recognizable. There's something also different about his resurrection body. But he comes and look at the first words that he says to his disciples. He says, peace, (laughs) peace. Be with you. Now, as he says that, in many ways, that's a very standard greeting. If you go to Israel today, and you talk to somebody that's Jewish. Likely, when you greet them, you will say shalom, which means peace. Or if you're talking to an Arabic person, you'll say salam alaikum, which means peace unto you. So, still to this day, these are standard greetings. But I'm convinced that these words from Jesus bear more than just saying hi, guys, right? He is communicating. Something And notice even how he emphasizes this. He repeats it again in verse 21. And then when he appears the next time, he says it again. So he is putting an emphasis on this idea of them having peace. And if you've been with us at all in the Gospel of John, this starts ringing some bells for you. Because this isn't the first time he has talked about them having peace. If you go back just a couple pages, you'll find John 16:33. And this is the very last verse of that conversation that they had in the upper room before he was arrested. So this is actually the very last verse that he says to his disciples before the crucifixion. And he says, I have said these things to you, that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation, but take heart, I have overcome the world. And so the very last words before he's crucified to his disciples is peace. And the very first words after the resurrection are peace. He is emphasizing this for his disciples. And he's like, hey, if you've had any doubts about me overcoming the world, booyah, I just rose again from the dead, right? This is all, and then look at the effect it has on them. It says back in John 20 that when they saw him, they were glad. And last time when we looked at the resurrection, That's what we saw, the joy that came in the wake of the resurrection. And this time we'll also see along with that comes peace. And he spoke about it even earlier in chapter 14, verse 27. He said, peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you. Not as the world gives do I give to you. Let not your hearts be troubled. Let them, neither let them be afraid. So as we think about, well, what is peace? How do you describe it? Jesus helps us here by telling us what's really the opposite of peace. The opposite of this peace that he is trying to give to his disciples is this idea of their hearts being troubled or them being afraid. So for point one this morning, let's put it down this way. Fight fear with a living Savior. Fight fear with a living Savior. We should not be afraid in this era in which we live. Because our Savior is alive. Jesus Christ is alive. Do you guys still believe that? Yes. yes. And if we believe that, then that should give us peace. We saw last time we talked a lot about joy. Well, Our lives should be marked with joy and marked with peace because of our faith in a risen Savior. Now, what kind of peace? Well, first and foremost, I want to highlight this is peace with joy. God. Why did Jesus have to die on the cross? Well, because you guys are a bunch of lousy, rotten sinners, right? Just to be clear, I, I am too, right? But that's why he had to die. Because we are sinners. We are enemies of God. So the first thing he does with this piece is he makes peace between us and God. It talks about this, and we'll see more about this piece if you turn with me to Romans chapter 5. Turn to Romans chapter 5. And it talks about this peace with God. And this is again after Romans has made that case. Hey, no one is righteous. You're all shut up under the law, but Christ, he's the sacrifice that atones for us and we can be made righteous by not our works, but faith. And then he gets to chapter five and he says, therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. What well, starts off, we start up with that peace with God. We have been declared righteous and now we are at peace with God. And more than that, verse 2 through him we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand. And we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. We can have a secure relationship with God because of the peace that has been made by this risen, living Savior. And again, he confirmed even the, the role the resurrection has in the, at that at the beginning of Romans when he described Jesus as declared to be the Son of God in power according to the Spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead. And if you're worried, well, I don't know. Maybe God's having second thoughts about me. I don't know if I'm going to make it, right? Look, look at verse 10 and the confidence this should give us for while for if while we were enemies we were reconciled to god by the death of his son much more now that we are reconciled shall we be saved by his life jesus is alive and that assures our reconciliation so if we look out at this room and say well what are you afraid of and some of you what is it that is troubling your hearts For some of you, it's, well, there's still uncertainty about your relationship with God. And this reminds us, if our faith is in Christ, that relationship is as secure as it can be. Because we are saved. We stand in grace that was not bought by your hard effort. It was not earned by your works. It is given through Jesus Christ. And if we've been saved by his death, how much more shall we be reconciled by his life? And that should give us peace and also, again, joy. Verse 11, more than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. We see so much, even just these last several chapters of John, Jesus speaking to his disciples about love and loving one another. Him speaking about joy, him speaking about peace. And that's the fruit of the Spirit, right? The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace. These things should be in our lives as a result of Christ. So not only do we have peace and we don't need to fear condemnation between us and God, we also have a peace that then helps us in our circumstances and helps us in our circumstances in a world in which Jesus said, hey, you're going to have tribulation. This life is not going to be easy. But along with that, he says, but you can have peace. You don't need to worry. We see even more of that in Romans 5, in verse 3, where it says, not only that, we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope, and hope does not put us to shame, because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who is given to us. And notice that Holy Spirit, that's going to become a big part of our passage in John in just a little bit. But when Jesus promises peace, he is not promising circumstantial peace. He makes that clear. I'm not promising that, hey, you won't suffer in this life. If anything, Jesus says, no, you will suffer in this life. But you can have peace in the midst of that. Because you know and you believe in a God who always, for his people, has a redemptive purpose in suffering. And if you needed any proof of that, look at Jesus on the cross and risen again. If anything, in the Gospel of John, we've seen that suffering is actually baked into a life that is all about glorifying God. Jesus saw him being lifted up, and his suffering, his crucifixion, is one and the same thing. That we glorify God when we suffer, but do it with the peace, with the joy, with the love that he gives us through his Spirit. And many of us, well, it's just the fact, actually, that we don't like suffering. And the reason that we fear suffering is actually we lack faith. We don't trust that God actually will use that for good. We don't trust that he actually has our best interest in heart. We start to think that we know what would be better for our life than God does. But when we trust him, we can have peace. And we can look back and say, even Jesus, he suffered. But God was there. He rose again This life might be filled with suffering for me, but I can have peace knowing I will rise again. And this life is not all that there is. Now, this peace, as we go back to John chapter 20, this peace has a purpose. Jesus is not trying to say, hey guys, don't worry, be happy and just enjoy the ride until I get back, right? That's not the point of this peace. Part of this peace is to help us on the mission that Christ is going to give and that's what we see next. Jesus makes clear, hey, guys, peace be with you, but um, you guys got some work to do. He gives them a commission. We talk a lot at this church, and rightly so, about the great commission, Matthew 28, 18 through 20, right? And, and this idea of making disciples, that's the purpose of our church, reaching, teaching, and training. Well, all of the gospels have some sort of commissioning passage post resurrection. Matthew 28 is the most famous one, but each of the gospels, Jesus talks to his disciples and commissions them in the work that they are needed to do. In Luke 24, which might even be really this same appearance of Christ, he commissions them and tells them that repentance for the forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations. That's what he tells them in in Luke, but this is John's version. And look, it's very short, but I don't want us to skip over it. In fact, it's the main thing that stood out to me in this passage this week. In verse 21, after he says again, Peace be with you, look at what he says. As the Father has sent me, even so I am sending you. So right there is a commission. Hey guys, I am sending you out. Let's not take that for granted. Let's consider this. He gives them a pattern. He says, as the Father has sent me, even so I have sent you. What does that mean? How did the Father send Jesus? How did the Father send the Son? Well, we don't need to look much farther than the most famous verse in the entire Gospel of John. John 3.16. You guys all know that one, right? For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. Right? God sent his son in the world so that people would not perish. And even the next verse that we probably don't all have memorized, John 3.17 says, For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Jesus was sent on a seek and save mission. And the church, you and I, we are meant to be the continuation of That mission of seeking and saving the lost. John 3.16, you know, we talk about, for God so loved the world and eternal life. There's one word in there we don't talk about very much, the word perish, right? That's an intense word. That, That word even biblically gives the idea not only are people dying, but they're dying in their sin. That They are perishing and facing the judgment of God. And we need to look around us and realize there are people Many people perishing all around us every single day. I think before this you know, whole pandemic started, people just didn't even think about or didn't realize that seven to 8,000 Americans die every single day. People are dying all the time around us. We just put it out of sight, out of mind. People are perishing and not just physically. People all around us every day are dying without Christ. They don't know him. They have not put their faith in him. And just as Jesus came into the world so that people wouldn't perish but be saved, he is now sending the church so that people might not perish but might be rescued. Point number two this morning, live life on a rescue mission. Live life on a rescue mission. As the father sent the son, the son has sent his people into the world so that people might be rescued from perishing. We love a good rescue story. I mean, how many movies is that basically the plot line? Uh, somebody needs to be rescued. How many young boys grow up wanting to be a firefighter because something in their you know, masculine instinct kicks in when they see these brave men running towards a burning building to help rescue people out of it, Right there in the middle of our passage, it's a simple phrase, but it's not one that we can just yawn our way through or feel that, oh yeah, I'm familiar with that. No, as the Father has sent Christ, He is sending His disciples. That's an incredible statement. And I want us to feel even the weight of that today. If you were driving home from church today, And you pull into your street and you pull into your driveway and you look and you see your neighbor's house and you see your neighbor's house on fire. You see the flames rising up from your neighbor's house and you look around and you don't see any fire trucks. You don't see anybody else there yet. Aren't you going to feel a a sense of, of burden about that? And then if you get out of your car and you hear voices, Voices coming from inside your neighbor's house that there are people still there. Wouldn't you feel a weight to that? Wouldn't you feel like something has to be done to help these people? And wouldn't that instantly become the most important thing in your life? Well, I hope today as you're driving home, you don't see your neighbor's house on fire, but... I hope you also understand as you drive home today, you're driving past so many homes and so many businesses and so many places where people's lives are going up in flames, right? Their house might not be burning, but their life is on fire, right? They're trapped in sin. They're dealing with the consequences of their sin. They have no hope and they are on a crash course with the judgment of God. That is the reality for most of the people around us in this valley. Does that make you want to do something to help? Do you feel a burden that these people need to be rescued when their only hope is Jesus Christ? When we look at these words, as the Father has sent me, even so I am sending you, it shouldn't be, oh, that's cool. It should be, whoa, that's intense. That's a heavy thought that we are being sent to rescue people that are perishing. In John 8, Jesus says some more to describe really what is true of so many people around us. John 8 and in verse 34, he says, Truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. And I might say, yay, slavery has been abolished in the United States. Thank you, Abraham Lincoln. Well, no. Jesus is saying slavery is still alive and well and right here in the Treasure Valley because there's a lot of people that are slaves to sin. They are in the shackles of their sin. And the only thing that can set them free is the truth about Jesus Christ. That's what he said in verse 32. And you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. And we're also warned if they don't know the truth, going back uh, to verse 24, Jesus had said, I told you that you would die in your sins, for unless you believe that I am he, you will die in your sins. Jesus has made the stakes clear. People around us are slaves to sin, and unless they put their faith in Christ, they're going to die in their sins. And it's only the truth about Jesus that can set them free. Do you feel a burden as you think about that? Do you feel a priority about that? That even, hey, that reality is probably actually the most important thing I should be thinking about more often. Going back to, you know, pulling into your driveway and your neighbor's house is on fire and you're hearing voices from inside saying, help, help, you're not going to, the game's almost over, I'll I'll be right over, right? You're not going to say that, are you? You're not going to say, you know, I served, I was on the teardown team today at church, so I'm a little hungry. So hey, let me get a bite to eat and then I'll help you. No, that is the most important thing. Really, the reality that people around us are perishing, we need to see more and more. That is the most important thing. It's not the only important thing we have to think about in this life, but there are people around us that are perishing. And the gospel of John is amazing. It reminds us so much of what Jesus has done for us. Isn't that encouraging? But we're reminded that's not where it's supposed to stop. What Jesus has done for us is meant to be passed on to others. And we need to feel that burden. We need to feel that weight. We need to feel that urgency. There was something that happened to me that made me feel that weight in a way I don't think I'd had before. And even kind of sent me into ministry. When I was younger, I had a much uh, different plan for my life than going into ministry. But God throughout college kind of started to change my heart more and more towards that. And one thing that kind of locked it into place was spending some time over in Uganda on a missions trip for six weeks, one summer in college. And a lot of that time we were working with the Hurleys, who's a family our church supports. Their ministry still there in Uganda. But we were there and Uh, We were kind of back with them. We'd worked with various ministries. We were back with them, but they were leaving. They were going to a missions conference in another country. So they sent us out with a local pastor in this one region of Uganda to do some evangelism. And what we got to do, this was pretty cool, not something we could really do in the States. We would go to different schools, and they would shut down all the classes. The whole school would assemble, and we would get right there in the school to share the gospel with them. It was a pretty awesome thing. It was a team of eight of us, and we kind of put this whole thing together where, you know, we would sing some songs, somebody would give a testimony, we had this skit that we would do, and then one of the guys would present the gospel to the students. And afterwards, we'd get to talk to students, kind of break them up into small groups, and, and talk with them about that. We were doing this for a whole week, and finally, it was the last school, and it was literally the last day of our ministry in Uganda. The next day, we were going to the airport, getting on a plane, and flying away. So it was the last school on the last day. And we had done the program. It had wrapped up. I talked to some kids. And so I was done. I'm just sitting there kind of on the side while some other people are wrapping up their conversations. And this young boy comes up to talk to me. He had kind of this really soft voice. And he asked me what had become somewhat of a familiar question at these schools. He asked me, okay, well, so are... Is God and Allah the same person? Do the Bible and the Quran say the same thing? You know, basically, what's the difference between Christianity and Islam? And I gave what had kind of become our standard answer. Well, no, they're, they're not the same because the Bible tells us that Jesus is God and he's the only savior. And also the Bible tells us that we're saved by faith, not by works. And those are some pretty big, big differences. And I told him that and he just kind of, stood there kind of quiet and then told me, well, I I believe in Allah. And then said, well, do do Muslims go to heaven? And I tried to just very graciously kind of go back to the same answer and say, well, the Bible says that Jesus is the only way to heaven. The only way to heaven is putting our faith in Jesus Christ. And as he sat there and you know, was thinking about that. It was kind of, you know, he spoke English, but it was still, you know, there were cross-cultural barriers in the conversation. As he sat there and responded to that, all of a sudden you could just see tears forming in his eyes and starting to come down his face. And I'm sitting there, I don't know what to do, right? Well, I don't know, what is he thinking? I have no clue. Does he even understand what I'm explaining to him? What's his life like? You know, I'm about to leave the country and go back, to America tomorrow, this kid is going to be left here with what I've just told him. And even if he were to say, all right, I want to believe in Jesus right now, clearly he understands next to nothing about the Bible who's going to teach him. And just assuming if this guy really is a Muslim kid and he decides, I want to follow Jesus, how's that going to go over at home? Who's going to help him with that? I just remember leaving just feeling this burden And this kid, and how many more are like him in this world? We need to think about that, but also realize how many people are there right here in the Treasure Valley that are like that? They don't know Jesus, and somebody needs to tell them, and somebody needs to stay and work with them. Our job is not just just to preach the gospel, it's to make disciples, to help them grow in the faith. There's so much work that needs to be done right here in the Treasure Valley, in Uganda, in every nation on the earth, right? We're coming up on three years as a church and we're thankful for what God has done. And sometimes I think we can start to think, man, we're doing so much when the reality is we're doing so little. And we have barely scratched the surface even of the spiritual need here in the Treasure Valley And then, yeah, there's this whole world that needs Jesus. And we should feel the weight and the urgency of that. And I was talking to this Muslim boy. One thing, whenever I'm at a prayer meeting for our church, at some point, somebody's going to pray for all the Mormons in our community, right? And that they would turn from their false system of belief to really trust in Christ. And that's a good thing. We We should pray for that. But well, let's kind of compare that to that boy. Okay, well then let's say, hey, I, I want to follow Christ. What do they know really about the Bible? Well, if they've really been following Mormonism, they know next to nothing about what the Bible really says. Are you going to stick around and teach them? And if they choose to leave their faith and follow Christ, do you think that might have some consequences in their current social circles? Are you going to stick around and help them? There's a burden that every single one of us should feel. And we should all feel like, man, we're barely scratching the surface of what needs to be done in this world. And we talk about challenges like finding a building or adding a service. And those are good things that we want to do because of all this. But we also have to realize, in some ways, that is the least of our problems. Our bigger problems are how many people are perishing in this valley that still don't know Jesus and still have never even heard of him. Right? We've got to reach This valley. We've got to plant more churches. We've got to see how we can become more involved in what God is doing all over the world. And more and more, we all need to be thinking about how can that be more of a priority in my life? How can this rescue mission be the main thing that I'm thinking about? Whatever you do. And maybe even for some of you, this should be God stirring in you saying, hey, Maybe God's calling me to leave behind whatever else I'm doing and to fully try to give my time to this rescue mission. And again, not everyone can do that. Not everyone should do that, but that should be the priority for all of us. This rescue mission that Jesus has sent the church on, we can't lose sight of that. Does that feel a little overwhelming? It should. If it doesn't feel overwhelming, I've done a pretty bad job of describing the mission to us. The nice thing is, even though Jesus gives them this colossal mission, He gives them some things that are going to help them in this era, and they're going to help us too. And the first thing is really the promise of the Holy Spirit. This mission is overwhelming, and it's really impossible for us, but God has given us the Holy Spirit that's going to work with us and that's going to make this mission a reality. In verse 22, It says, when he had said this, he breathed on them and said to them, receive the Holy Spirit. Now, there's a lot of discussion. What's going on here? Uh, When he breathes on them and says, receive the Holy Spirit, is that when they actually receive the Holy Spirit? How does that match with Acts 2, where we see the day of Pentecost? What's going on? And some would even say, no, this is when the disciples receive the Holy Spirit. And I think the the best way to understand this is, this is a symbolic action that Jesus is doing, symbolizing what is to come, right? He's breathing on them to and talking about the Holy Spirit that will shortly come upon them. I don't think this was the actual coming of the Holy Spirit. One, Jesus had kind of made clear, well, I'm going to leave first, and then the Holy Spirit is going to come. Two, I think we see that happen in Acts chapter 2, even one writer put it this way if John 2 or 2022 20, is Pentecost, it must be frankly admitted that the results are desperately disappointing and the promises of John 14 through 16 are vastly overstated, right? I mean, all the promises that Jesus made, and even think of what we see in Acts 2 this miraculous sign, preaching the gospel, thousands getting saved, the boldness. Here, they're still locked in a room and will be a week later. But it is the promise of the Spirit that is to come. And let's be reminded of that promise because Jesus had recently spoken about that. Back in John chapter 16, verse seven, he says these words, which almost seem crazy to us. Nevertheless, I tell you the truth, it is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. Jesus is saying, having the Holy Spirit with you is better than if I were to stay here with you. And we might all think, I'm pretty sure having Jesus here would be pretty helpful, right? Well, the problem is Jesus, when he was a human right, he is he's in one spot. Well, the Spirit is everywhere, right? It's here with us in Idaho. it's with our brothers in Uganda. It's all over the world, working through God's people. And it's helping with this rescue mission because it's doing the work that we can't do of convicting sinners of their need for Christ. Verse eight, and when he comes, he will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. He is going to do that work. And we might say, whew, what a relief. I don't have to do anything. No, scripture is clear. You have to do something, but you won't do it alone. How will they hear unless somebody tells them? No, it's our job to tell them, but we're not alone in that telling because the Spirit is helping us and ultimately driving that into their hearts where it needs to go. And even though we should feel overwhelmed by this mission, we should feel empowered in this mission. And every single one of you, even if you're not a pastor or you feel like you know everything, the Spirit is working in you because you might think, well, I can't rescue anybody by myself and that, I mean, you're not wrong. We're a bunch of knuckleheads, right? But the thing is, we're not alone. The spirit is working through us. And not only do we have the spirit, we also have an authoritative message in the gospel. We have a powerful message. And that's what he gets to in another verse that kind of makes us scratch our head. Verse 23, back in John 20, when he says, if you forgive the sins of any they are forgiven them if you withhold forgiveness from any it is withheld what in the world is that saying is that saying when you're leaving this service and you go to Boise fry for lunch you can kind of walk up to one table and say your sins are forgiven and you can look at another table and say your sins are withheld sorry right is that what's going on saying oh you can just dole out forgiveness and withhold it wherever you feel like it clearly by your laughter. We know the answer to that is no. Even though some have kind of tried to take it that way, the Roman Catholic Church would kind of say, well, the church has the authority to do this, but we would say, well, based on what? And even the Greek tenses of the words here, they are forgiven or forgiveness is withheld, has the sense of it's already, it's already happened. And so what's going on here is basically not saying you can just say, hey, you're forgiven. Sorry, you're not. Just at our whim, but what it's saying is we have an authoritative offer. And we can mean what we say. That when you do go to Boise Fry for lunch after the service, you could offer somebody forgiveness of sins through Jesus Christ. And you don't have to be like, well, you know, let me check on that to see if, if I can actually do that with you. No, you have the authority to offer the forgiveness of sins. And if that person says, You're right, I am a sinner. I need a savior, and puts their faith in Christ, you can tell them your sins are forgiven because of what you have said. And if you share the gospel with someone else and they say, I'm not buying that garbage, you can say your forgiveness is withheld from you because you have not responded to the gospel. That's what this verse is saying. But again, it should encourage us that we're not going out there saying, well, you know, I hope. No, your sins can be forgiven through Jesus Christ. And the difference is not going to be, um, you know, your will. Well, I will for these people it would be forgiven and for these people not to be. No, it's ultimately going to be their response. God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever what? Believes. That's what's going to determine whether they are forgiven or not. And that really brings us to our next Lesson in John 20. How are they going to be forgiven? We're going to see a lesson really about belief. This new era that is starting post resurrection with the coming of the Spirit, it's an era of peace for believers, it's an era of mission where we have been sent, but it's also an era of belief. And we see that with Thomas, who most of you probably have heard before referred to by the nickname Doubting Thomas. And in some ways, that's a little bit, I mean, unfortunate for him that that's what he's remembered by, but he's the one who wasn't there the Sunday before. And, uh, you know, if he had been there and Bartholomew hadn't, we'd all probably be talking about doubting Bartholomew 2,000 years later. He was not there the first time around. And as much as I want to agree with one commentary said, where he said, see, that's why you shouldn't miss church thought, you know, that's a good word. I don't know that that's the point of this, but hey, don't miss church. That's a different point. That's a good point to make. But then it is the next Sunday. It says eight days later, which as they counted days, they would have included the current day in that. So eight days later was one week later. And the disciples were inside again, and Thomas was with them. Now remember, yes, he wasn't there And the others were, but still his words were pretty strong at the end of verse 25. You know, unless I place my finger in my hand, I will never believe. Well, now here they are, eight days later, again locked in a room, and again Jesus appears. And again, he says, peace to you. And even if you want further reason why I don't think the Holy Spirit came In verse 22, well, a week later, they're still locked up in a room. That's not how we see them operating post-Holy Spirit. But Jesus, he goes straight to Thomas. And whether it was just through his omniscience or whether he'd appeared to other disciples, and they're like, hey, Jesus, Thomas is having a really hard time. We don't know. But he goes straight to Thomas and meets his challenge. Hey, put your finger here. Put your hand here. Do not disbelieve, but believe. He calls him to do that. And we don't know if Thomas takes him up on all of what Jesus offered. It doesn't say if Thomas actually goes and puts his hand in his side and puts his fingers where the nails were, but he certainly complies with Jesus's command to believe because that's what we see the expression of in verse 28 when he says, my Lord and my God. And then Jesus responds, now it's hard to, tell the first part of this verse, whether it's a statement or a question, that there's not punctuation marks in ancient Greek, so we're, we're understanding it. It's possible, I think even more likely, that Jesus said, you have believed because you have seen. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet believe. And really, I don't think he's trying to speak down on Thomas's faith, saying, well, pff, your faith is lame because you had to see. I think he's more exalting the faith of those that don't get that chance to see. And that's the era in which we live in. We don't live in an era anymore where, hey, remember when Jesus fed the 5,000? Remember when we were there and we saw that and we ate the loaves and the fish? No, we weren't there. That was 2,000 years ago. You didn't get a chance to see the risen Christ and to put your fingers in where the nails were and your hand in his side. We have not seen, yet we believe. And that's the era in which we live in. It's not an era where it's like, hey, no, this is Jesus right here. Let me show him to you. No, we're calling people to believe, to put their faith in a Savior that they have not seen. But also, I think we see something about the nature of belief itself in this passage. And even in John, we've seen clearly there are types of belief that are genuine and lead to salvation. And there's a type of belief that's that's phony and doesn't lead to salvation. What's the difference? I think we see one of the clear elements, again, as we look at verse 28 as thomas says my lord and my god really that's that's not a that's that's more than just a response of agreeing with the facts right thomas didn't see the risen christ and say all right guys you got me he really rose again he doesn't say anything about the resurrection What was important to Thomas wasn't, okay, now I believe that a certain thing happened. No, now I believe in someone, right? His faith wasn't just in the events. His faith was in the person. And that faith can only be described, I think, in verse 28, really as worship. He comes not just to see what Jesus has done, but to worship Jesus for who he really is. My Lord and my God some ways that is a climactic statement really summarizing the whole gospel of John. I mean what we'll see next time is how John says, "Hey, this whole book was written so that you might believe." And that this is the example of Thomas believing, and that belief includes that sense of worship. It includes a sense of submission, "my lord, that Jesus is his master." And it also includes another thread that we've seen all through John, really, of the deity of Christ. He calls Jesus, my God. And Jesus does not rebuke him, right? Jesus accepts this worship as God. Point number three this morning, worship the Savior you haven't seen. Worship the Savior you haven't seen. I don't think you can separate real saving faith from worship. They go together. And that's what we see here. The significance was not just, oh, Jesus did this thing. It's no, Jesus is this person. He is my Lord and my God. And I want to speak some to you today that you feel you can identify with Thomas, where you are uncertain really about who Jesus is and and what he has done. And I want to remind you even, this whole idea of blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed, it's not saying, hey, this era that we're in now, it's all just blind faith. I don't know if this really happened or not, but just believe and cross your fingers, maybe. No, there's still reason to believe. I can't show you Jesus Christ in the flesh, but there are reasons to believe. Here's one, the Gospel of John. That's what he says. Hey, I wrote this to you. I wrote down a whole book of things that I saw with my own eyes so that you might believe. And he's still calling for you to believe today. And if you are uncertain about the events, the thing I would encourage you to look into more than anything else is the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Did he really rise from the dead or not? It all really rises or falls on that question. And if you honestly, with an open mind, dig into that question, you're going to find what many have found now throughout these thousands of years, there's no other possible explanation for why the church did what it did, why the apostles did what they did, why the church has grown the way it has other than the fact that Jesus is alive. But I want you to see more than just the facts. I want you to see who this is, that Jesus Christ is someone that is worthy of our worship, and for you not just to say, yeah, you're right. He probably did rise from the dead. But for you to say, my Lord and my God and to worship Christ. And for all of us, this is a reminder that our mission is more than just spreading the facts. That's a part of it. We have, the truth will set people free. They have to understand the, the truth of what really happened. But our desire is more than them just to agree with facts. It's really for them to worship Christ. It's a good reminder to us, is our life one of worship? That other people would see and tell that difference. That would inspire them to worship Christ. It's really going to come down, do we truly believe him? Do we truly worship him or not? I want to end just with that more familiar passage in Matthew 28, the great, what we call the Great Commission. Right before it begins in Matthew 28, 17, it says, when they saw Jesus, they worshiped him, but some doubted. I mean, those are your choices. You're either gonna worship him or you're gonna doubt. Which is it gonna be? My prayer is that we would be a church full of worshipers who eagerly seek to live out what Jesus says next. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Let's pray. Father, I just pray that as we leave here today, that we all would leave with a right sense of just the burden and the weight and responsibility of the mission that you have given us, God. I pray that, Lord, we would set our sights higher than just being a church that, hey, we're we're growing or we're adding a service. God, those are good and necessary things. But God, I pray that our true hunger would be, God, there are still thousands and thousands of people that don't know Christ in this valley. God, there are people all over our nation, people all over the world that haven't even heard of Jesus, God, help us to feel compelled to do something about it and to start with what we can do this week, God, but even when necessary to reorient our lives, to make them more about this mission that you have given us, that you have sent us into the world so that others would not perish, but have eternal life through faith in Jesus Christ. And God, ultimately, we thank you for Jesus. Our faith rests on him, none of us here today can say we are here because of our goodness or our effort or our works. It's all because of him. And God, I do pray for those that are here that doubt. God, there's still uncertainty. God, I pray that your spirit would work on their hearts and you would open their eyes to see the reality of these events, the truth in what is being said, but also the majesty of Jesus Christ. God, I pray that there will be people today that say, my Lord and my God, and truly bow the knee to our king and put their faith in him. And God, even just as we reflect on this, Lord, let this week be full of thanksgiving for us and not just thankfulness in our possessions or the nice things in our lives, but thankfulness for your amazing grace that you have shown to us. God, thankfulness even for the grace that you have shown our church, God, but also God, that even that gratitude would bring in us a sense of of burden and weight of just passing on what you have done and that we would be a faithful, worshipful church that is being sent and is sending God and seeking the rescue of those who are perishing around us. So God, we lift this all up to you. We thank you for the promise of your help through your spirit, through your word. We ask this all in Jesus's name. And all God's people said,